Welcome to one new uh, video interview series on citiesabc.com. Uh, this time with Professor Kiran Jude Fernandez. Um, uh, a, a, a very um, honored personality that we are welcome to this project, and as well a researcher and academic that has been working on the academy for uh, decades, as well a research in different areas that we're going to be looking, special related with cities and uh, um, social inclusion and impact, as well uh, uh, responsible for the UNESCO uh, within UK and share different departments related with the UNESCO. And as well, we're going to be looking between his profile and the academy and the relationship with the world and the different projects that is doing both in research and as well in such impactful uh, empowerment projects. Um, I would like probably just as one note, an introduction about the Cities ABC. So this is a, a social platform, digital innovation for uniting and connecting cities. Um, this series of interviews are starting to have a big audience. We're getting around 5,000 unique view, uh, views per, per view for the video and we are actually growing and bringing more and more personalities on board. So welcome Professor Kiran Jude Fernandez. And um, as a starting point, I would like to, of course, ask you if you could uh, introduce yourself and as well give a bit of your education and background. I think that's very important for our audience and to present you. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm Kiran Fernandez. And I currently work as the Associate Dean for Internationalization at Durham University. I'm also a professor in operations management at Durham. Uh, just to give you a, a brief background about myself. So I started my education and my career as a production and an industrial engineer. And after doing my qualifications in production engineering, I worked for the US space program, NASA, for a few years. Um, my role was of a subsystems engineer. And I worked on a project which most of the audience will be familiar with. And that was the design of the pumps that go into the space shuttle engines. And of these projects, uh, there were nine successful space flights. Perhaps the most well-known of this mission uh, to your audience would perhaps be the mission STS-95. If you might not remember the word STS-95, this was uh, the opportunity when Senator John Glenn um, visited space for the second time at the age of 77. So he's the oldest person to have a space mission uh, at, from uh, the projects that we were working on. And this was also a mission where there was, for the first time, Spartan 201. So this was a spacecraft that was released. Um, and this is the spacecraft that was responsible for uh, looking at solar winds and the origins of the sun's solar corona. So uh, with that as a background um, in development and design of subsystems, so this was part of a big system, I got more and more interested to understand not just the technology side, but also the human and technology interaction. And that's why I pursued to do a PhD in manufacturing and operations at uh, the Warwick Manufacturing Group in the UK. Uh, this allowed me to focus on a very interesting topic called interactive situation modeling. So this allows you as a manager to model very complex situations, very complex domain, using the power of observation, using the power of technology and software. Uh, it gave me an opportunity also to learn a lot when I was in Warwick, uh, working for a very well-known professor called Professor Lord Kumar Bhattacharya. Allowed me to work on, not just as a multidisciplinary team, but also to work with a large number of world-class companies, but also making research relevant to industry. 
uh, after which I, after this, I moved to York University as a lecturer, eventually became a professor, and now I'm in Durham University uh, as a professor in operations management. Oh, fantastic. That background about NASA and all the different areas you've been doing. So you are original from, uh, from can you tell us about your background and family and, and the country? Because I think that's very important to have uh, the, um, the, the cultural context and, and as well, yeah. your uh, US, uh, UK, and, and I'm sure other countries as well. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I, I was born in India and I come from a cultural background which some of your audience might be familiar with. Uh, perhaps not all of them, uh, and it's a community of people in India called as Anglo-Indians. So these are people who in India uh, are a group of people that uh, were, uh, during the British Raj, uh, a set of folks that were as a result of the British being in India. So I come from that small community of Anglo-Indians, uh, I did my education in India, my high school in India. I did my first degree in engineering in India and then moved to the United States. I was in the US for about six years, after which I moved to the UK. And for the last 20 plus years, I've been in the UK. So in a way, you know, I have three homes, one in India, one in the US, and obviously I live in UK. So that's my home now. That's fantastic. And that shows as well the, the wealth of cultural background that are very important right now. So coming back to your uh, uh, academic uh, background, so you, you did your PhD in manufacturing operations and uh, in Warwick University. And then you, you, you've been a teacher, but as well as well associated dean in Durano University. Can you tell us a bit about that uh, academic uh, background and as well your Wait, work in Durano University? Yes, so basically, um, as you, you're absolutely right, you know, I started my academic career in Warwick. I joined Warwick as uh, EPSRC. So the EPSRC is one of the research funding councils in the United Kingdom. And I joined Warwick as an EPSRC fellow. Uh, this allowed me to pursue a PhD as well as being a EPSRC fellow. Um, and what it allowed me to do was to ask some fundamental questions on how people used to model complex domains. And traditionally people have always modeled complex domain using very deterministic techniques. So for example, people would look at models like discrete event simulation, which many of your audience will be familiar with. Or people have used a number of formal modelings, like UML being one example in software engineering. Now, while these have a lot of power because you can develop things in a rapid, quick, cost-effective manner, many a times these don't necessarily reflect reality because in reality, Things are far more complex than something that can be easily put together in a very formal model. And this was something which I experienced when I was working for NASA. We used to model some very, very complicated, and I use the word complicated rather than complex here, a lot of complicated engines, a lot of complicated parts that became part of a space shuttle. These smaller teams we were called as uh, subsystems. There were many subsystems teams that eventually became a system. And in the case of the projects I worked on, the system was the space shuttle, which had many subsystems. And while we model these complicated things together, we always knew why part A was connected to part B, or what would be the effect of A on B, or what would be the com cumulative effect of A, B, and C on D. So while these were very deterministic, there was a huge element of how humans interacted, how innovation was created, how innovation was flowing, and how innovation disseminated. So many of these things were not easily built into the system because the focus was always on formal modeling. 
And this was something I always was keen to explore. And that was how can we truly model complex phenomena, not complicated, but complex phenomena, where it is very difficult to understand why A and B results in C. And this whole idea led to me to research and understand in Warwick as part of my PhD, this phenomenon called interactive situation modeling. So we are modeling the rich interaction, the rich situations, rather than just A plus B equals to C or A leads to B, the most traditional way of doing modeling. And while I was coming up with different theories and different opportunities, I started to dwell more and more into complex phenomena. One example I shall list is of a project which when I moved to York University as a lecturer, I worked with a multidisciplinary team. And the project was funded by a research council. And the phenomena was a very simple phenomena, if I explain it, and that is about gun crime and the impact it has on prisons. Now, we all know what gun crime is, which is basically a process or a phenomena. Obviously, somebody has been successfully prosecuted in the UK's case for uh, possessing illegal, illegal weapons. To your US audience, perhaps the definition of gun crime might be slightly different uh, because of the gun laws there. But nevertheless, when people do illegal activities in the possession of gun, that's a gun crime. Now, there's a direct impact of gun crime and the number of people in prisons. Now, the question really here was, is, can we truly understand what gun crime phenomena is and how does it impact people? Now, there have been a lot of traditional research and the traditional models would have suggested you need to look at increasing the number of police, stricter regulation, perhaps trying to put more CCTV cameras, all the usual things that you would expect in a model. We took a very different approach. And the approach we took here is of one, which says it's clear that nobody is born with the idea of committing gun crime. Something happens in the journey of a human being that they get infected as a result of an idea, an ideology, something they read, perhaps as a result of social friends. So there's a softer element that somehow triggers through a series of events, something that this particular individual then starts to basically go on a journey of committing gun crime. So we model this using a very different model, a very different phenomena. The phenomena we start to almost look at is <coughs> idea flows through system, i.e. people, people's mind. And let's track the idea in the system rather than trying to say A equals to B equals to C. And as a result of this, we suggested some very interesting interventions in our model. For example, we started to ask simple question, how long would it take in the education system that would start to make an impact on people not to use guns in the illegal manner? And our studies show that this takes about 10 to 15 years. So we need to be putting resources into education for not one, two or five years, but something in the order of 10 to 15 years before you start seeing any tangible impact on how and why people use illegal weapons or this particular thing. And that then directly has an impact on prison. So this is an example of what I mean by how the idea from and in my PhD evolved into modeling complex systems. This also allowed me to work with colleagues in York University. And we were very lucky to set up one of the largest and one of the first centers on complex system analysis, which was called as the York Center for Complex System Analysis, or ICSA. It's the largest open community of researchers, they come from a very diverse set of backgrounds. We have biologists, mathematicians, economics, uh, people from environment studies, computer scientists, business, marketing. And it brought together a lot of folks 
and people started to explore and are exploring in Ixa even today, how we can work together, apply new disciplines, new methods to analyze, to model, to explore and solve very complex problems that cannot be tackled by one discipline. So it really allowed me to open up this idea of how do we model and how do we understand complex phenomena. And I've taken that forward in Durham, looking at regions, interaction of regions, companies within regions, how does innovation flow within regions? How do regions connect to the global trade corridors? And these are things we could only solve and understand if we use this open idea of being able to model this complex phenomenon. So that's how really my research has progressed in from a research perspective over the last two decades. So um, on that, and I think this opens a lot of doors here. So um, I would like one, one specific, when we talk about complex models and complex systems, one of the things that bears to mind is all the complexity of the fourth industrial revolution tools. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's probably a good angle to go. Um, I want to do a scientific question and a political question, uh, or at least more social question. So, and I think it's particularly interesting, the example of the gun crime effects in prisons, um, to look at the problems we're having right now with the complex systems and the way the perception of the audience have. So the first question is, um, how do you see the complex systems uh, when it comes to the fourth industrial revolution? And that's a question that I think for me it's very important because I think due to this complexity, um, we have a lot of issues right now with the world economy, um, with the so-called fake news, with, the, with as well a lot of people spending huge amounts of research for garbage. For instance, like the case of the 5G right now that uh, there's videos, entire research done, even for instance about NASA, there's entire communities that were created online to deny that people went to, to the moon. So how do you see this complex modeling from an engineering perspective, but as well the impact it has in society, and as well specifically how, how our academic uh, community, which you are part of, and we are all partly related, and then the rest of society that comes to phenomenons like uh, Brexit and a lot of other things that are questioning authority, question, and I'm not going to the political, but pure from the scientific level. Because that, that's a very important thing, being you an academic, and I think that the complex model is exactly the root of all the problems. So how do you see that part and these two challenges that we are facing? Okay, I think it's a very good question. I mean, first of all, when I use the word complex, uh, clearly what I mean is not just complicated, okay? So complex systems are systems which are difficult to understand. So the challenge in a complex system is not of an optimization or is not of trying to solve the problem because in complex system, the challenge is to understand the problem. Okay. So the problem is something we need to understand. If I give a very simple example, what I mean is, let's say there is a company that has to attach 5 million transformers to, I don't know, something in the order of say 10 million uh, stations around the world, transmission station. Now this is not an easy task, but this is not a complex problem. It's a complicated problem because we know what we need to do. It's not easy, but we can develop some algorithms, we can develop some systems, we can develop some tools, some techniques to achieve this fairly complicated job. On the other hand, if I use another example and say, okay, how can we ensure that we can, on one hand, solve the ongoing COVID-19 issue, but at the same time, ensure that the economies of different parts of the world are safe. Now, this is an example of a complex problem because we are just trying to get ahead around what is the problem. So the challenge in a complex system is, what is the problem? But also, there are some distinct properties that you observe in a complex system. So these are the patterns you observe. So for example, you observe certain things like non-linearity. And I already explained earlier non-linearity. It generally means A plus B does not always equal to C. So this is something which 
when you start to look at a complex problem is you need to look at this idea of non-linearity and understand what non-linearity is. Okay. The second thing is about emergence. So this is when you see certain patterns emerging and self-organizing around certain things that happen. So when you look at a complex phenomena, let's say of, of gun crime, which I gave you earlier, you see emergence of a pattern. Emergence of pattern is the number of crimes or how people behave to this. So these are different things that emerge. So you can observe things that emerge. And then the other key element to notice of adaptability. How are things adapting to certain situations? Now in a complex system, generally things or entities within this particular complex system adapt. Now, for example, if you look at COVID-19, this is a huge external shock on companies. Companies will try to maneuver this tight adaptability space and make some rapid decisions to adapt and survive. And this is the natural thing for an entity within a complex system to do, is to look at both internal and external shocks, make certain decisions, and try to adapt. In some form, the COVID-19 virus itself is a complex entity because it's trying to adapt to the surrounding itself. So complex system is where you see this non-linearity, you see emergence, you see adaptability, and then you have loops within the system, one loop connecting to the other. So when we try to analyze any complex system, you need to look at it from that perspective rather than being focused on saying, how can I derive a quick solution to the problem? Because there is no one quick solution. It might be a multiple of solutions, which are all interconnected to one another. So you need to look at it in a holistic way. Okay. So now to answer one of your questions, now you, you, you particularly talked about Industry 4.0. Now, Industry 4.0 in particular is very exciting. It's something as a phenomena I worked for some time. And what is the biggest challenge in Industry 4.0? If you look at Industry 4.0 on two dimensions, one dimension is around the process and the other dimension is about how companies are adapting to this particular scenario or the human-machine interface adaptability. So on one hand, you have humans and one hand, you have machines. What you end up is a scenario where you have Humans that are using some form of existing intelligence in technology to bring things forward. And some of these are complicated, but they are not really huge challenges. Now, we all know of automation. Industry 4.0 talks about automation. It's not a new phenomenon. It's been there since the 1980s. Robotics is well advanced. There are going to be new forms of robotics and drone technology. But we broadly know how this is going to interact. We already know there's a lot of conversation about ethics. These are challenges. I think the biggest challenge is going to be the interaction between machines and machines, machines making autonomous decisions, and the ethics and the human interaction with this decision making. I think this is going to be the biggest challenge in Industry 4.0. I'm not saying other elements are not a challenge. This, I believe, will be the biggest challenge. We will be at a stage where machines are interacting with machines, which they already do, but they're not making autonomous decisions to the level that we expect them to do. The current decisions are fairly if and then. If this happens, can the machine do that? If the temperature in your house reaches a certain uh, temperature, can the electronic system trigger the heating or the air conditioning in your house that can basically trigger it on or off? That on and off then feeds back into the, the power company, your billing system, your app, etc. So these are machines making decisions, but they are not the same as making autonomous decisions on complex issues. That, I think, in the Industry 4.0 is the biggest complex system. And how do you make decisions? How do you govern the ethics of this artificial intelligence decision-making? Who does it? 
are the parameters the same as how human beings interact with human beings have the same ethical standard? Is the decision about machine to machine something different? For example, when two human beings are interacting and we want to make ethical decisions about it, we know there's an element called empathy. We use empathy into our decision making. We use other cultural norms when we interact with colleagues. The way you interact when you are dealing with a client in China will be very different to the way you interact with a client in India, to a client in Europe, and perhaps to a client in Latin America. Because you are aware of the cultural subtleties, the cultural differences, and therefore you govern yourself in that. How would machines do this in the industry 4.0 era? Now, these are unknowns. This is a journey. Industry 4.0 is a journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We are all on this journey. Some companies are doing better on certain dimensions, as I said to you, on automation, on using assisted intelligence. And there's a lot of work happening. This is making companies productive. This is going to increase the GDP. It's going to create new forms of jobs which we have not seen before. I mean, you know very well, there's a World Economic Forum report that in the next two decades, 60% of the jobs that will exist are jobs that not have been created today using technologies that still don't exist. So it's a journey. It's a challenge. But I believe the biggest challenge will be this element of autonomous decision-making and the roles we as human beings play in that decision-making, particularly from an ethical standpoint. So I think there's a lot of activity happening in this. There's a lot of things happening. And I feel this view of looking at it from a complex system perspective makes a lot of sense because we are a global community. They will be in the next two to three decades, 50 global regions in the world. I don't believe there will be cities in the traditional center of cities. I want to call them as global cities or global regions. Why do I want to use the global region? Is because there will be a federation of cities in some cases beyond traditional boundaries of geography and politics. And we already know in China, if you look at it, and you go to the golden region or the golden triangle region of China, you got Guangzhou, you got all the way from Foshan, going down to Shenzhen, linking into Hong Kong, now linking into Macau. All of this is one big, gigantic region. And the Chinese government has said that you can go from point A to point B, anywhere in this golden region, and the ideal scenario is within an hour's journey. And they are putting the infrastructure in place. Now, people in that region in the future will not see themselves as a person or a citizen of Shenzhen or from Foshan or from Hong Kong. They will see themselves people of this global region. Similarly, you see a lot of activities happening in global regions in India, linking corridors, linking cities. And the only way we can truly understand this global future is to look at it from a complex system perspective. Because it is complex. You're bringing in people, you're bringing in cultures. You are still asking fundamental questions. How will a region that is going to have in the order of 200, 300 million people in this super city, in this global region, survive? What will the jobs look like? What is the impact on the economy? What is the impact on sustainability? What is the impact on food security? How are they all going to connect to one another? Who are they competing with? These are still unanswered questions. And the only way we can do is from that perspective. And Brexit, because you mentioned, will have to connect to these dots. UK or Europe, for the matter of fact, cannot stand on its own. They will, if there are these 50, 60 global regions in the world that are emerging, the question for UK post-Brexit, or even the question for European Union is, how do we connect to these global trade corridors? We all know the population demography of Europe. It's on the decrease. We are having more older people than other parts of the world. The question is, 
Does that mean we isolate ourselves as a trade corridor? Of course not. How do we connect ourselves? So these are the questions that you mentioned, Brexit, the industry 4.0 revolution in its entirety. They, I believe, can be looked, understood. Once we understand something better, we can put in a set of measures, we can put in a set of strategies that link these problems together. It's a collection of problems that need a collection of solutions. So that's my perspective on how I view the things like Industry 4.0 or Brexit from a complex perspective. Um, well, that opens a fantastic uh, um, different perspectives uh, from the regions, the super corridors, which is a very interesting uh, concept. Um, before going into that, I want to just ask one specific uh, question related with your work as associate dean in Duran University. And as well, how do you tackle this from an education as a dean perspective? Because I think that's very important, specifically with the times we're living right now. Yeah. I, I think it's a very good question. Uh, in my role as uh, the associate dean at Durham, we have taken a two-pronged approach to this global vision. And we call it a 2025 global vision. And the reason we have two from, because on one hand, of course, we want to be a top university like many other universities. But our second from is very embedded in what we want to achieve. We want to achieve leaders and entrepreneurs that are enthusiastic to share and use their knowledge to deliver equitable and sustainable futures around the world. So we have this very strong agenda, this very strong vision. And in my role as the associate dean, I'm working with colleagues, not just within my faculty, but also across other faculties to ensure that we are truly creating leaders and entrepreneurs who are, of course, in a delivering value to society economically, but also making sure there is equitable and sustainable future around the world. So I see my role very much embedded into what I talked to you about. And we are very committed as a university, but it's not just Durham. I see this attitude changing around the world. I'm seeing this happening in leading universities in China. I'm seeing this happening in leading universities in India. I'm seeing this happening not just in North America, but also in Latin America. So this agenda of creating wealth and sustainable communities together with world-class excellence is something I passionately believe about. I've signed up to this agenda in my role, and this is what we are trying to produce as the next generation of leaders and current generation, because we also train existing leaders on different programs. So on that level, so, and I think, uh, so uh, Duran is, is a, um, can you tell us a bit, a bit about the University of Duran? Where are the main areas for the people that don't know so much? And this is a global audience. I think it's interesting as well, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. one of the things that I think can connect cities and cities ABC is our uh, platform is the universities. And yeah. of course, sometimes we always talk about the top 50 or top 20 universities, but we don't talk about other universities that are doing fantastic work. Yeah. Could you yeah. just highlight some of the research and, sure. Sure. and sure. those that you're working further? Sure. <clears throat> so Durham University, for colleagues who are not from the UK, is a university based very close to a city which you might be familiar with uh, called Newcastle because of its football team, if nothing else. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, we are one of the northernmost cities. And after Durham, you have Newcastle, and then we have the border between England and Scotland in terms of the, the train route. So if you've ever been to UK, and if you're not, you're welcome to, and you take a train from London to Edinburgh, you would go past Durham. So we are in the northeast of England, geographically, and we are one of the oldest universities in England. Um, we have been there for a very long time. And the history of Durham goes far, far before. So I mean, it start, its origins are around 1830 as a formal university 
but it, it has existed uh, as a seat of learning way before that. And there are several things about Durham which uh, some of your audience will perhaps be familiar with. For example, you might be familiar with the Lindisfarne Gospels. These were the oldest uh, Western Gospels, and they have a very close affinity to Durham because they were written as a series of Gospels not far from Durham University. And we are seen by a lot of people as one of the leading universities in the world for theology, which is one of, has been uh, one of our strengths. We also have a number of very, very world-class departments in the field of social sciences, uh, geography being one of them. We have a very leading business school, which is where I work. Again, a world-class business school. We have a number of colleagues on who are fellows of the Royal Society, which is a leading accolade, uh, fellows of the British Academy, uh, fellow of the Academy of Social Science, uh, I'm one of them. We have Royal Society of Edinburgh Fellows, Academy of Medical Sciences Fellows. So it's a university with a very, very rich tradition. Its traditions, like many English universities, has been uh, a church university uh, where it has had a number of people that have not only graduated, but also led thought on theology, both Catholic and Anglican theology. The university also is made up of the formal departments, which I mentioned to you, like geography, as uh, business, as chemistry, physics, but also a number of colleges. So we are a collegiate university. Now, some of your colleagues that are listening to this will be familiar with what colleges are. For those who are not, there are a few college, collegiate universities in the UK. The two obvious ones you're probably familiar with are Oxford and Cambridge. Durham has a number of colleges. I'm fellow of one of the colleges, which is called University College, one of the oldest colleges in Durham. And together as colleges, as well as departments, we form and give students a very rich experience. So students are not only having uh, experience in the departments and faculty, but they also have a very, very rich experience in the colleges. Durham is also popular for sports. We have an exceptionally good uh, sports team, over 50 different sports. Um, we have cricket, one of our best teams, uh, which is cricket. Uh, there is a tournament, uh, which is called the Docks Bridge Tournament, uh, which is the tournament between Durham, Oxford, Cambridge, and York, which is a, it's an unofficial uh, uh, tournament, but it's very popular uh, in the UK system. Music drama is, again, a very, very popular uh, discipline in, in Durham. And we have a very large number of very well-known alumni. The other thing which you will probably know of Durham is if you ever watch the Harry Potter movie, um, a number of the scenes in Harry Potter were filmed in Durham University, particularly the Great Hall, where if you remember uh, Harry Potter uh, and, and others uh, were awarded in which house they belong to. So the hat that comes on them. So that was all filmed in Durham University. So, so from that, you can get a picture of, of the tradition of Durham. But we had many, many alumni uh, for, for some of those who probably know. The current Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Uh, we have prime ministers uh, that have been from the university. A uh, large number of uh, military generals, a uh, number of MPs, these are members of parliaments, a uh, large number of journalists, specialists, a um, uh, number of folks that uh, in the business world, uh, as well as um, people like Paul Hawkins, who has a PhD in artificial intelligence from Durham. You might probably know him because of the Hawkeye ball tracking system if you're in football. Uh, that, that tracks in, again, uh, Durham alumni. 
many alumni. So I could go on quite a bit, but it's a university that has been a seat of learning for a very long time, very adaptable, a very complex system, but very adaptable, uh, to use my analogy. Fantastic. I think it's important to, to highlight <clears throat> because we have so much good work being done and normally doesn't have the credibility of the right sources. So continuing on the, the interview and we'll be going around 40, 50 minutes. So <clears throat> one of the things that you've been working, especially the work as manufacturing and the complexity is as well uh, working with cities and especially right now and you touch a bit COVID and coronavirus, so how do you see these challenges related with the coronavirus in, we are still in the first stage, but the effects in the world economy and finance and as well education, everything are really very devastating. How do you see that as point one, as a professor and researcher as well, and looking at complex systems, then as associate dean related with a, as well, uh, one university where we are actually one of the leaders and as well in your work with UNESCO. And I think we'll touch UNESCO in a separate question, but I would like to, to look at this angle because definitely this is changing and it, it, well, it brings a huge new complexity because in the end of the day, in three weeks, um, the world economy melts down. And, yeah. um, and of course, this will bring a lot of new problems and complexities that we have to tackle. How do you see that? And I'm sure that you're working on that both as an academic and as a researcher. I think it's a very interesting question. I mean, what I hope, I, I, let me, what I hope will change as a result of coronavirus in respect to cities. Now, the first thing to notice, what is it that I think is happening? I mean, we all know, as I mentioned earlier, the world population by 2050 will be around 10 billion. 75% of that particular population will be living around the 50 clusters, which I call as global cities. Okay. So the first thing I think we need to do, and I hope we do, is to stop viewing these regions from a political or a geopolitical background, which we are used to seeing, which is unfortunate. We are used to seeing these cities, these population of people from a political or from a geopolitical view. So X people in India, Y people in China, Z people in Europe, etc. So we have created and carved our worldview around these geopolitical spaces. This is one of the things that COVID-19 has shown us is, has been wrong for one very simple reason. This COVID-19 and any future pandemics need a global response. Having isolated response is not the solution for not just pandemics, but also for the economy. Our global economy is made up of companies that have actually learned this lesson a long time ago. Companies do not operate in traditional boundaries. They don't think about in traditional boundaries, but they're forced to think about in traditional boundaries. Let's say there's a company with a supply chain where they are getting some parts from Europe. The company is based in UK. Let's say the administrative office is in Ireland, financial office in Europe, parts being produced from China, and maybe the HR and the back office in India. Now, this company, what I'm describing to you and the audience, is not unusual. This type of company has existed for some time. They have operated in this market beyond this geopolitical world for some time. Unfortunately, because of this geopolitical view, we have forced a lot of, in, a lot of things on them. For example, this company now has to operate in a financial system that spans five or six countries. This company has to operate in different types of supply chain that finds perhaps 10 or 12 countries. This has created a situation where companies cannot be agile, cannot be resilient, cannot react in the time they need to react. So what I hope is given that we all know where we are reaching as a population, I think we should open up. We should start viewing us as these super clusters and start answering questions about 
What do these super cluster cities need? How can we address city clusters challenges? <coughs> Excuse me. And how do we then go about making welfare and sustainability as our key priority? And this is not an easy job because we are talking about politics. We are talking about different urbanization. Now, what are some of these challenges post-COVID we need to think about? There is no doubt from a business perspective, there will be huge geographical shifts to supply chains. There is no two ways about it. Serious questions are being asked. What is the type of supply chains we need? Do they all need to be global? Do they need to be regional? Do they need to be national? Do they need to be a mix? These are unanswered questions. The other challenge is about urbanization. While there has been this huge drive to bring people closer and closer in city regions, the genuine debate is, can we spread them out? If we spread them out, how spread can they be? If we spread them out, how do we connect all these? Can we have not just key cities, can we have tier level one cities, level two cities, level three cities? How do those level three cities connect to one another? These are again genuine questions. How does business network and market access work in these clusters of companies? Resource, I don't need to mention to you. How do we manage the future of our resource? Not just people's skills, but also simple things like food security, energy, infrastructure. Where are we going to get these skills for the next generation of jobs? I already mentioned 60% of jobs we will have in the next two decades are jobs that have not yet been created. COVID-19 has shown us some of this in a very, very practical way. Many of the folks who were not able are still learning how to use some of basic technologies to make their jobs easy. How do we employ new generation of skills but also retrain and reskill people. These challenges from a city regions are very crucial. And what I would say is we need global industrial strategy, not just national strategies. And we are familiar with national strategies. The UK has an industrial strategy. Europe has an industrial strategy. China has a five-year plan, which is the industrial strategy. India has an industrial strategy. Now, these are good, but they're not connected. The dots are not connected. And if we want this new economy that builds on innovation, that builds on sustainability, it is absolutely crucial that these 50 super cities, super regions play a far important role. They cannot be playing a second fiddle to the equation as they're doing now. The way we now view is the geopolitical world is we've got country, Below country, we've got regions, and below regions, we've got cities. I think that pyramid has to change exactly the opposite. We need to start about thinking about cities. We then need to think about regions, and then we need to look at national policies. That is the only way we can make cities to be truly connected. And these cities will compete and collaborate with one another. That is the future. There really is no future if we think in the same way we currently do. So that's that's exactly the vision of Cities ABC. So um, one question on that direction. Could you elaborate more on the top 50 super cities? And I really love the metaphor or, or the, the focus and the emphasis on the, re, on the cities first because it's actually... Even me as a thought leader, one of the things I'm seeing is that I think COVID-19 and all the effects coming are going to be probably dismantling the present uh, geopolitics that we have and partly our civilization and create a kind of a new emergence of city-states because the countries are not reacting to this in the right way. There's a lot of division, a lot of geopolitics, and you, you touched that in a very uh, critical level. Could you just... Uh, um, Highlight more, how do you see the top 50 cities and this vision of the city's first policy? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think uh, what I would say is, so if you look at the type of 
mega regions or type of super cities that are evolving and they're already happening. For example, if I start with India, you have the Navi corridor. Navi is a term meaning new, new trade corridor. Navi is new. The new corridor, which is basically linking Bombay or Mumbai to Delhi. Now, this is a huge span, about 800, 900 kilometer span, bringing over 50, 60 million people together on all sorts of exciting projects. So this, this is already forming. Or if you look at Brazil, you have Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, that whole belt bringing about 48, 50 million people in, in that space. Uh, I earlier mentioned about the golden area in, in, in China. You've got Guangzhou, you've got Shenzhen. Added to that, you've got Hong Kong, potentially now Macau. That's about 120 uh, plus million people. Or you've got a collection of cities. If you look at the East Asia corridor, you've got Beijing. You've got parts of uh, North Korea, Seoul, Tokyo, and many other cities, about 70 odd cities, all part of this East Asia corridor. But then also, let's not forget, we have existing city clusters in the US, we got obviously Europe, European cluster, but also we got bigger projects trying to connect these dots. Now, one example of this connection of dots is the one road, one belt project. I don't want to call it the one road, one belt uh, policy, I think it's a project. The project as it's, it's, for, just, it's one of the projects, but I just use this as an illustration. It's connecting some of these corridors I mentioned. It moves from China, tries to connect the uh, East Asia corridor. It's trying to connect number of corridors from India, which is Kolkata to Dhaka going into China. It's connecting the Navi corridor, which I mentioned to you earlier, from Pakistan, Bombay, into Delhi, into the north. It's uh, collect, uh, connecting number of corridors in Iran, Uzbekistan, it's Kazakhstan, into Turkey, into Germany, parts of Egypt through road, as well as through sea. Uh, it's potentially connecting Sri Lanka, the entire uh, African, course from Somalia all the way up into through the Suez Canal connecting into Europe. Through train, it's trying to connect uh, uh, Europe, UK potentially into this belt. Now, there are already projects, ambition that are looking at not just cities, but also connecting cities. And this will not be the only project, but this is a good example of how we need to start thinking, not just in Asia and Europe, globally. Of course, One Belt, One Road doesn't go into details on North America or, or Latin America. But also, we need to start thinking how this flows, not just for obvious roads and belts, sea, air, and train, but also for knowledge. What does such project, what do these projects mean in terms of knowledge flow? What do these mean in terms of cultural flow? What do these mean in terms of education flow? What do these mean in terms of economics? What do they mean in terms of sustainability? So these are opening some very exciting questions with these trade corridors, with these mega cities, but they need to be connected too because they are not only collaborating, but will be competing. So we need to understand there's a dynamics of competition as well as there is an element of competition or co-option in some form here where things are being connected. So this is how I view these mega cities that try to live with the old and the new. What I mean by old and new is, if you look at certain parts, I take example from India, which is uh, most of your audience will perhaps familiar with. And if you look at how innovation takes place, one form of innovation is called as Jugaad innovation, which people might have heard. But Jugaad broadly means making things work. Now, if you go to some of the poorer parts of the economy, uh, slum parts of the economy, 
and you start looking at how people are working. Now, I just pick one example. There is a large part in Bombay called Dharavi, and, and some of your audience is familiar with it. It's about 250, 300 hectare. You have 1 million people living in this very tight space. But if you look at the statistics of this, 43% of this population are self-employed with 5,000 businesses and about 15,000 factories in this small space. And it's generating an economy of about 1.6 billion US dollars. Okay, now it might not look new innovation. And when I use the word new innovation, it might not look like a fancy incubator. It might not have glass building where you have some form of accelerator or you have startup companies, but they still have innovation happening. They have regeneration happening. They have new form of warehousing, new form of logistic management. One classic example, again, your, your, your uh, audience is probably familiar with is the Dabawala or the people who supply food from home to office in India. Now, these are people who come pick up hot food from your house and go and deliver it to your office or wherever you work. The food, almost like Uber Eats, but instead of Uber Eats, they take, pick it from home and deliver it to your office space. The accuracy of picking it up and delivering it here is about 99.9% .9 accurate. Now this is technically Six Sigma. This old innovation has achieved a level of innovation that is something most modern innovation is still trying to achieve. Having a 99.9% .9 accuracy, a Six Sigma system in delivery of products. Now, in this global connected mega city, we need to make sure that we are adapting both. Not just focus on saying everything has to look and feel in exactly the same way across all these regions. That is not possible. We need to make sure we connect the two. So to answer your question, how do I view them? That's how I view this, a connected global economy, but where you have this new and old innovation working together to achieve basically what would be in the future, a place, a system for about 10 billion people. And the challenges we all know are huge. Uh, fantastic. And I think this is an area that uh, needs much more, probably we need to come back to an interview or something like that. But so one of the last questions, because we're going close to one hour right now. So um, could you tell us about your work with UNESCO and as well, both your work with UNESCO in the UK and as well, different areas of interest and work on that, but as well, how UNESCO sees these on a global scale, because UNESCO is probably the best prepared organization to tackle a lot of these things. Yeah. Uh, very good question. So my role in UNESCO is I was appointed by the Secretary of State for DFID, uh, colleagues who are not from the UK and don't know the term Secretary of State. This would be a cabinet minister in your respective country. Uh, so I was appointed by the Secretary of State to be on the board of the UK National Commission for UNESCO. And I've been in this role for a long time, since 2013. And I'm also currently the vice chairman of the National Commission for UNESCO. And as a result of this, it gives me a number of opportunities to work with colleagues around the world, uh, the, those who are members of UNESCO. About 194 countries on earth, and most of the audience that is listening to this are probably members of UNESCO. Now, this has given me an opportunity to do a number of things. And one of the things that perhaps in the course of time I shall mention is about the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, most of your audience is familiar with what they are. These are basically the 17 goals that we have globally agreed to achieve by 2030. These are around a number of things, but primarily what they are 
is they are looking at economic, they are looking at societal, and they're looking at environmental issues in a broad sense. And collectively, there are 17 of them. Now, one of the biggest challenges in SDG has been many countries are doing well, but a large proportion of countries are not doing well. And the reason are many, one of which is finance. Now, there are some studies that have said the cost of achieving sustainable development goals globally is around 7 trillion US dollars a year. That's the cost. And just to get a sense of what 7 trillion looks like, the GDP of USA is around 14 trillion. Uh, China is around 7 trillion. So we're talking a lot of money. And this causes sometimes grief. And the reason why it causes grief, one of the things that I have been pushing on UNESCO and on the, both in UK and globally is exactly what I said earlier. Stop viewing these goals from a national perspective. The moment you start viewing them from a national perspective, it does two things. Firstly, it starts benchmarking countries. So you end up with some countries on achieving the SDGs will be excellent, very good, good, poor. So all of a sudden now you've created a system where you have four tiers of countries, excellent and poor. This has already created a problem. That means the countries that are doing well view SDGs as a project where they need to start giving money to the countries that are doing poor. This immediately is where this number 7 trillion comes from. And therefore it becomes very difficult for policymakers in these countries, which are doing well, to start justifying what is the value of SDG. Same time, you end up with countries that are not necessarily doing well, having exactly the opposite problem, where they say, oh, the reason we can't achieve is because we have no money. So if we get rid of this national boundaries, because the 20, 30 goals, the 17 goals are universal goals. No poverty. It's no poverty around the world. And we need to be starting to look and say, how can we work collectively? So I have again applied the same lens and said, okay, if we minus geographical boundaries, how can we achieve SDG? How can we measure SDG? And how can we make sure that not just UNESCO organization, but how are also companies contributing to SDG? End of the day, it's businesses, it's people, it's the NGO and the government collectively that have to work towards achieving this SDG. So that's where my focus on UNESCO has been. And we have created a number of toolkits that allows us to measure this. In fact, a report which I have co-authored with people will be published in the next few weeks. And this will show the value of UK's membership to the UNESCO not just in financial terms, but also in terms of SDGs. How is UK contributing to SDGs? And hopefully that can roll out to not just UK, around the world, where different parts of the system are trying to contribute to this global 2030 vision. Now, you know, 2030 is not that far off, but with the gap between where we need to be and where we are is huge. And that's where really I'm pushing UNESCO. And as you rightly say, UNESCO is an excellent vehicle and an excellent organization where we can bring a number of these aspects together. Because it's a specialized agency, the key focus of UNESCO, as most of you know, is about peace. It's bringing peace. And once you have this overarching umbrella of, of peace, then we know exactly what we can do. Education, culture, sciences, communication. And communication in UNESCO focuses on the thing you mentioned earlier, not just journalism and freedom of information, but also about fake news. So UNESCO has a very big brief about education, culture, sciences, that includes social and natural sciences, 
and communication. Yeah, so I think definitely we'll have uh, another interview about UNESCO. Um, so I think we, we, we are close to one hour, so I would probably wrap up. So thank you so much, Professor Kiran. I don't know uh, how people can, um, just as a last note, how people can reach you, University of Durham, and as well the UNESCO Commission for the UK and some of the reports that you mentioned. I think it's important for our audience to know about that. We'll put that in the in the article that will come in close to this, but it will be important for the audience to know that. Okay. So in the article, I will, I will provide you with a link, which will link to both my Durham University webpage, which has most of the reports I've talked to you about, so they can click on it, and it's most of them are free to access. If they're not free and you want them, if you email me, which is also going to be in that, uh, I will be more than happy to email you any of the reports I talked to you about or any of the publications I talked about. So absolutely no problem. That's the best way to contact me, email. Fantastic, and thank you so much, Professor Kiran. It's been a privilege, and there's a lot of ideas here from the, the, the digital global corridors to the UNESCO, to the work of uh, uh, complexity, and as well, um, of course, the University of Durham, and a lot of other universities have been working. So. I, I thank you for this time and uh, I hope our audience uh, will find a lot of interesting things and of course more research that we'll put in the links and sources that Professor Kian mentioned. So thank you so much. Wishing you, you a great day and keep safe out there. And thank we'll you. Well. Yes. Thank you and keep safe everyone. Thank you.